Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The big news is that Elixir 1.14.0 release candidate 0 was tagged. So this begins the sequence of release candidates that lead up to the final 1.14 release. Typically, as we enter this release candidate phase, we won't see new features added, but we are likely to see some bug fixes. So the change log has already been fleshed out enough to where you can see and have a better picture of what a lot of these improvements are. The short summary is that 1.14 brings many improvements to the debugging experience in Elixir and data type inspection. It also includes a new abstraction for easy partitioning of processes called partition supervisor, as well as improved compilation times and error messages. This also includes what we've recently talking about, which is the new DBG or debug function, expression-based inspection. That's where it's improvements to the IO inspect function and what it outputs in the console, making it easier to copy and paste and pull back into IEX. And also, as we mentioned, the partition supervisor, and there's more. So I expect we'll be talking more about the features and what's new and improved as the release gets closer. RCs are usually a good point to start testing things out. So feel free to download it and run your application and your tests against it and be sure to share your results. I'm a little like unreasonably excited about like a minor thing in there, which is binary slice. This is also in the in 1.14. I've always had to like drop into Erlang to do binary slicing, which is like a really efficient way of cutting apart like a, a string. That's also in there. Yeah, I always wondered about that like that weird uh, inspect protocol stuff where it does like the hash maps that stuff. You can't copy and paste that stuff. So it was like kind of a pain to get it back into <laughs> into some tests or something. So that's pretty cool that they're addressing that. Once it's release candidate is tagged like that, then using tools like ASDF for version management and stuff makes it even easier to pull it in. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to playing with this and trying out some of these new features like you're talking about with binary slice. All right, also up, WhatsApp, and particularly Mikhail Muscula, probably butchered a name, sorry, has open-sourced their Erlang type checker. It's called Equalizer, and there's like a W in there. It's like Equalizer. It's uh, kind of spelled weird. Here's their, their description of it. It's, it's still a, a work in progress, especially around documentation, but now there is a concrete place to watch for this. I could have sworn uh, I might have my Elixir conf year wrong, but... I want to say it's back in 2018, so like four years ago, there was a mention about Facebook, Facebook owns WhatsApp, by the way, uh, is developing a type system for Erlang. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'm putting my my puzzle pieces together. Maybe this is it. So that's pretty interesting. It's not 1.0 yet. It's still early, but wow, that's pretty cool. All this talk about types. And so Elixir, you know, is, is having research done now about types in Elixir. And then it seems like there's there's this other system here equalizer that could help with the Erlang stuff too. So speaking of WhatsApp and Facebook or Meta, whatever name you want to use, their engineering blog just published something out uh, out there about languages that are approved for for their use. It was a, an interesting article. Not a lot of Elixir stuff in there. Mostly Rust folks will be excited about this post than anyone else, but I, I was excited to see that Erlang was in the list. So in other words, like this isn't one of those small little projects that like the the developers have to like not mention that they use Erlang or something to get it by the you know <laughs> the rest of the company. No, they, they actually support Erlang, so that's that's uh, that's pretty cool. They do say that it's like in specific use cases, so I imagine that's that's WhatsApp. But pretty cool article that's been going around the interwebs. Give it a read. 
The Elixir GRPC project has had a big update. We talked about this before with Paolo Valente in episode 109. He recently took over maintenance of G the GRPC library. So they just released 0.5.0, which revived this library from its death. So a lot of work went into this from him and several other maintainers bringing it back, probably avoided a lot of pain for future Elixirists here. So we're grateful for the work that they did here reviving this project. And uh, they tweeted out saying they look forward to having more of a formal roadmap published soon. So thanks to the work to Paulo and all the other contributors. Yeah, I'm particularly excited. It's not in this release, but the Mint adapter is coming soon to uh, gRPC, which is great. Oh, it's using Gun? Yeah, it's currently using Gun, which like that's not something I've ever... That's one of those <laughs> libraries that's not in my my dependencies yet. <laughs> right. Right? You have every version of Hackney and every version of HTTP Poison, but... <laughs> but but not gun so uh but not gun <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'm excited about that one yeah and i think a lot of the work that was done recently with that is a lot of prs had been submitted towards the project but there wasn't any shepherding of getting those all the way in and merged and so they had a, a large backlog of a lot of work and improvements that people have been trying to contribute so i think a lot of this was just helping to go through all of that and get it all merged in and bring things up to a point where they can now say, okay, we're at a good point now to build from. So it's exciting to see. And I've noticed, you know, that happens to libraries here and there, right? Like someone gets excited, maybe they're doing a project for work, they build an awesome library, maybe they switch jobs, maybe they sit, switch projects and they just disappear, right? And then people are like, oh, can we fix this? Can we fix that? And they're just radio silent. And it's it's hard, right? It's rough if you're in a position where you want to use it. So super glad that someone was able to take it up and shepherd it, like you're saying, Mark. And next up, we have a little update on the Dockyard Academy initiative. So just some time back, we learned that Brooklyn Myers, who is the host of the Elixir Newbie podcast, joined Dockyard to help create a Dockyard Academy. It's a sort of 90-day online Elixir bootcamp. So on the Dockyard blog, there was a recent Q&A blog post where they talk with Brooklyn to understand more about what's going on with this and what has been done towards it. So if you haven't heard about this initiative, here's how they describe it. it says Dockyard Academy is a fully remote programming academy focused on providing practical experience to prepare students to enter the tech industry. We offer a three-month full-time course with a dedicated teacher and collaborative cohort. Our open source curriculum covers topics such as Elixir, Phoenix, LiveView, OTP, and commonly used libraries. Just looking at it, I saw as other libraries like you would expect, like Ecto. So while this may not directly apply to you, dear listener, maybe you know someone who it would be a better fit for. It is open source. We have a link to it in the show notes where you can see the beta curriculum that's being laid out. So there's still some questions. It hasn't begun yet. And uh, we look forward to hearing some more information as this gets closer to launch. And we'll be sure to pass that along. Next up, it looks like the IntelliJ Elixir plugin got an update. It looks like a bunch of enhancements to documentation, rendering, and other things. So if you're a fan of that, this looks like a good update. All right, last up, we talked to Ben Johnson in episode 101 about Lightstream. And Lightstream is uh, as a way of supporting SQLite in a distributed cluster, which is really cool. And during that discussion, Ben mentioned maybe moving some of that distribution logic into the file system layer, Fuse. Well, that seems to have happened now. So there is a new release called LightFS, FS being for file system, I presume. And uh, yeah, still a little early, but he's opened it up for some feedback. So that's really exciting to see. 
This is good news for folks that want to keep it simple with SQLite and yet still take advantage of all that distributed, you know, goodness of uh, that that Elixir. And in this case, Ben Johnson works at uh, Fly.io. So you can utilize some of those features at Fly.io uh, and, and make this stuff just work really well. Pretty cool. Go check out the GitHub. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Jason Axelson. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we've had you with us before. We're super happy to have you back. Today, we want to be talking about deploying PRs for easier review. When I've worked in companies before where we had dedicated operations teams or or DevOps teams even, where they would go about setting this up, where I could say, like, we had dedicated QA teams as well. And they would say, we want to check out this code and see how this actually runs and, you know, check out this change, this pull request, and see, does this do what it's supposed to do? And be able to deploy that as a separate little piece to be able to be reviewed and verified. And that's a really cool thing. I loved being able to do that at the one company I was at. I've never seen it since. And you've been talking about how we can do that more recently with our Elixir code, our Elixir PRs. And I thought that is really cool. It can be something that we can use to improve our own workflow, especially among teams, right? It's as a single developer, eh, I'm not going to do that. But as like a team and we're especially when we get into larger teams, trying to isolate changes, very cool. So I'm looking forward to talking more about that. But before we go there, I'd love to hear more about you. Maybe you can tell us a little about where you live and what kind of work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So I live in Honolulu, Hawaii. I've been here for ever since, I guess, intermediate school. Uh, I'm currently working at Felt. We're working on making it easier for people to create maps um, online, create and share maps. Um, because right now, a lot of people just create maps by like taking like a screenshot of Google Maps and just like drawing on it, and which. Uh, doesn't end up looking very nice. And then you lose all the nice mapping goodness. You can't like zoom in or zoom out. So it's hard to like, as like a user of one of these maps, it's hard to like orient yourself on the map. You also can't like get directions to like a piece of the map. And there's just, there's lots of room for improvement there. So I've been at Felt since I think of September of last year. So getting close to a year now, uh, it's been great. We raised a series A in I think May. Yeah, now we're trying to find a product market fit. We're iterating on a bunch of things. And so speed of iteration is something that's very uh, critical to us. And so we make some investments in that area. So that's related to what we'll be talking about today. I do want to make sure to mention that you're involved with quite a bit more in the Elixir community than just like this discussion in case, you know, people are coming new and they don't know you. You're also involved with Elixir Forum. You've also been involved with Elixir LS with the Elixir Sense kind of stuff. So maybe you can just give a little intro to kind of some of the other stuff you're doing in the community that people may not have associated you with yet. Yeah. So one of the other things that I do with the Elixir is I'm a moderator of the Elixir forum. I think it's just a a great place to get discussion on Elixir. And it's like a great resource for you just finding like searches for problems that you might find on like Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever. I also help, it's not quite as true anymore, but I help maintain Elixir LS, but I've really pass on all the day-to-day maintainership stuff to um, Lucas uh, Samson. So he's been been handling all that. I just haven't had as much energy for that recently. I also really like to dabble in um, in like nerves and in scenic. So I've been running like a scenic remote meetup kind of off and on for the last, I don't know, year and a half. But that, I mean, that's like, what, three or four meetups over the course of that time. <laughs> 
COVID did that to all of the meetups, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always been online, so it's like less of an excuse there. <laughs> but my my latest project in that area is a there's a, a seven color e-ink display called an inky impression. Uh, I've been working on that with like Lars Wickman and Jason Johnson. It's kind of funny how that ended up working because like Lars like did the initial port of like the Python code for the inky impression, and then I, but he didn't actually like test with like the hardware so much, and then I worked on actually getting it. The hardware, make sure like we were able to paint to all the areas of the screen. And then Jason Johnson came in and actually got it fully working with like scenic and then kind of cleaned up so people would be able to, to use it after that. <laughs> that sounds cool. So, so the idea here is, is it's, it's a Raspberry Pi running NERS and your, your screen at this, at this point. I guess the only thing that's different is, is that it's not just a, normal LCD kind of screen. This is an e-ink color screen, so the refresh rate's a little bit slower, right? More than more than a little bit in this case. The color <laughs> e-ink screens are really slow. Really slow? <laughs> yeah, like 30 seconds to a minute to update. Oh, wow. That is that is slow. <laughs> but what I remember about that, that was so interesting to me, I think we've, we've talked about this before. Basically, you can make a change to the display and basically power it off. And it just remains there. So it's like super low power for just being able to have digital signage or something that you want to change uh, on some infrequent interval. Yeah, like prices or the name of the dog in this kennel or, you know, whatever. So like, I, so I remember seeing it, it was, how it was being used in like a, a pet rescue center where they're like changing the, like the e-ink display on the kennels. And I thought that was super cool. And, and going back to the Elixir LS there, I don't want to skip over that too much. I know I know what you said there about Lukas uh, taking on most of it, you know, nowadays that's, that's valid. And I've seen a lot of his work and, and I'm really happy about that. But I don't want to, I don't want to glaze over what you've done. You, you did a really hard part of like restarting development on Elixir LS, if I remember right. Like there was a, there was a lull there for a while where, you know, it, it just wasn't being worked on anymore. And then you, you brought it back to life. You made it, you know, uh, have energy again. And that's, that's really difficult to do. So thank you so much for, for, you know, kickstarting that again. Yeah. I think part of that overall thrust spring was just to make sure that it was it was able to continue being maintained things weren't like dropped and also just setting it up for like the future with like an organization and so it's not just like one person that's in charge of it so that way a lot of open source we have like these normal like ebbs and flows and so just having like a group of people um helps to to kind of i guess share that burden so i want to get back to the interesting stuff that you've been working on at felt so the the concept is a is a a review environment or a PR PR review deploy. And the first time I ever encountered this was with Heroku. Heroku owned by Salesforce now, but they had a really easy way to just like deploy your app in a review environment. You get one of those randomly generated addresses and you just you just go there, right? And it and it turns itself off after a while. But I haven't been working on Heroku for quite some time now. I've moved on to other, you know, modern stacks and I kind of I kind of miss that sometimes. How did you come back around uh, around to this? How how does how did you start with this? Well, there was kind of an initial version of that that was set up when I joined Felt. So we use for, for Felt we we deploy on um, render.com. So it's kind of like a Heroku alternative that is able to support like it can support like static sites and then different backends and you can also just do like plain like Docker images. Confusingly, they have uh, two different sort of review environment things. They have one that's like pull request reviews and then another that's preview environments. 
<laughs> so pull request reviews, you can only set up one server like per pull request. You can't like set up like a, your own your server and the database as like one um, separate instance. So that's why we use the preview environments, or that's why I changed it to use the preview environments. I mean, this is before we were launched, but at that point, all those pull request review environments or whatever were using the same uh, database. Uh, so it's kind of using like production, but like not that we had any users. Uh, so if you ran any migrations and you're <laughs> Your pull request, you want to make sure you got them right at the, the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about your team there at Felt. You said, you know, some of this was being done before uh, you got into production. But when you're talking about wanting to review pull requests from other developers, like who is it that's doing the reviewing? Just so we, I can get a picture in my mind. Uh, is this like a dedicated QA team or is this other developers? Who is it that's wanting to be able to review these things? Pretty much everyone in the company at some point is looking at the reviews just about. Obviously, the other developers, I mean, just having the code actually running in an actual production-like environment is great for just making sure that any random edge cases are handled <laughs> and like is like a general like, sanity check. Uh, but also like our designer is like always looking at it. He's providing uh, feedbacks and tweaks there. And then that also helps because like if it is like some new functionality or like a tweak to something that's existing, it's easier to find the the part of the code where you'd have to tweak to like change like the padding and like whatever other uh, designer things, but also like the, the CTO and the CEO are definitely very involved in like the, the product and testing it out. I f we find it just really helps for quicker, quicker iteration and also just for experiments. So we can see like, okay, open up like one version that's like this way and another version that's a, another set of behaviors. And then we can kind of uh, compare them in a useful way rather than having to wait for people, other people to test it until after it's actually been deployed to production or to like a staging environment where it becomes like harder to roll back. What I think is really interesting is this idea of like, uh, you know, you're creating a new feature and maybe it, it's, it's a significant effort. Maybe it's one person working on it. It could even be two people, three people, it doesn't matter. But it's like this, it's a large feature and it might be a little bit long running. It's really valuable to get feedback, you know, from the designer, from stakeholders, yeah, from the, you know, the people who are interested in this, like the CEO or, or so, whoever's driving this effort and be able to get that feedback early to say, hey, here's, an, here's a new version. What do you think? Without having to, like you say, put it on to staging or other environments or like put it behind feature flags even to go to production. It's just like, just try it out on a PR. I think that's, that can be really valuable. So I, I love that idea. I I, mean, I haven't been doing that since, like I mentioned, it was like years ago with this other team. It was like, uh, they'd set it up with Jenkins, right? <laughs> oh, I remember Jenkins. Yeah, years and years and years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was like janky, right? I think that's where the word janky came from. <laughs> but it was, you, know, you had to manually click this little button to deploy it and everything. So I'd love to also get into how we deploy these things. But I just think like the idea of being able to deploy a PR that could be ongoing, right? I'm, I'm going to continue and do more work on it and then now deploy the new version. I think it's really powerful and can be transformative to how stuff gets rolled out and deployed in within a company. You said it like shortened your feedback cycle and you, it, you iterate quicker. So like, I'd love to hear any more about the benefits of how it's been as a company. People are really actually like kicking the tires on the new features before they're deployed instead of just like reading about how they work or like watching sometimes we'll record like a little like screencast sounds a little heavy i guess a little video like demoing it or a gif you know but actually like trying it out just helps us to build a build a better build a better product overall 
There's a couple of trends I've I've noticed as teams get larger, and I'm not sure how I sit uh, on them. Like when when I am a reviewer and I come across a PR and they have like a full blown screen screencast, right? Because or 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 they've been called out on some like weekly meeting to do a demo of it, right? There's there's such a production around this thing, and it's not it's no longer like about the feature. Um, like it, itself, the proving that it works. It's now it's it, it becomes a little bit more like I got to sell the feature, you know. I got to convince that this is this is the the next best best thing because you know what, my uh my quarterly review comes up next week <laughs> and I really need some like, <laughs> you know, some kudos or need, something like that. I need that. a win. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and I, that just doesn't sit sit right with me sometimes. So so PR environments like this where it's so seamless to get a a a piece of your code up there in a in a working environment in a in a quick and easy way for other folks that are interested, low ceremony, you know, seems like the right the right thing. Well, one point, if I may interject real quick, is that if if the developer is like providing like a video of like what they did, they're very likely to like possibly or probably unintentionally just go along like the happy path of the the code. But if if you are able to actually like run the code yourself, then you can kind of explore all the other uh, aspects of the code that the developer may not have been thinking about. So when I'm reviewing, that's one of the things that I'm I'm trying to do. It's like, oh, how would this interact with like other parts of the system that are partially related but weren't directly touched? Yeah, screen screencasts. You're right. The screencasts, those demos like that. That's that's the happy path only. I'm gonna hide the ugly parts. But when you got a PR environment or review environment up, and you got other developers in there, and and let's say that you're the reviewer in this case, yeah, first thing you're gonna do is gonna be like, mm, I don't think this is gonna work when this case, when this kind of input comes in. You're gonna you're gonna try to break it. So that's that's an interesting thought. Well, I'm curious what you think, though. Uh, we had a discussion a little bit ago, and maybe you've seen it on the internet as, as well, the end of localhost development. This kind of goes in that direction, but it's not like the development part of it. It's like it, it's it's making that, that infrastructure, you know, as, as uh, an easier part to spin up the, the environment, right? It, it, the, the difference here between that, you know, localhost discussion is that it's, well, localhost, and, and then we're talking about review environments. That's not localhost. Where do you see that going? Do you see localhost being dead in five to ten years or something like that? Or is is this is this a co- okay thing? Can I be happy with this and <laughs> and still keep my neovims? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't I don't want to see localhost development going away anytime soon. But I wouldn't be surprised if it does go away for especially for some industries. Like, imagine if you're like, I don't know banking or finance or something, or maybe like DOD things, the push is going to be get, get less work going on your local machine just to, so the the company can have like more control over it. But I pref- generally, I'd definitely prefer to develop like on local host. Yeah, I can see how you would view this as kind of pushing in that, us in that direction. Was this was this in in like response to like di- how difficult it can be sometimes to get um, a branch up running locally? Yeah, yeah, I guess it kind of is, especially for other people at the company that aren't developers. It's it's just like a pain to try and test someone's code locally, and especially like if there's like five different like PRs up at a time. Like then then as like the reviewer, you need to like switch between them, and like maybe you have to pause like what you're working on. Uh, so it's just nice to just have it all in like a separate self-contained environment, like running in the cloud. 
Yeah. So there are two parts I want to make sure we we cover. One is how was the how is this launched? Like, is this launched from GitHub, or you know, is there a different interface that you're using to to say launch this PR? Uh, it's launched all from GitHub. So as the developer, all you're doing is just putting up the pull request, and then the way it works is that render is watching all the well, it's watching another Git repository, and when it sees the new pull request come up, it creates this preview environment. And the preview environment is based on the like render.yaml file, which is basically like a description of like, okay, what backend are you using? What plan do you want to set it up with? You can set up separate preview plans so you're not like using like a huge server for, uh, for these preview environments, but it makes sense, but you are being uh, charged for them. So generally you want to kind of use like the more, whatever they call it, standard or hobby level dynos or instances. <laughs> And then one other part of this also, oh, and then also when you, you can set like a time of like how long you want the preview environment to stay up for. So I think ours is set up to stay up for a week without any deployments happening to it. But if the developer is like actively pushing code, then it'll keep staying up, Um, but that is configurable. And then when somebody closes the PR, the environment goes away. So one of the other parts of this uh, preview environments that we've set up is uh, what we call like the felt like one click bot. So um, when that PR comes up, I mean, the, the preview environment is created, but there's no, by default, there's no like direct link between the preview environment and the PR. Um, so what we did is we created a little, well, it's not quite a bot. It's just like some actual JavaScript code that runs as part of the, well, so initial deploy hook. So it runs after the preview environment is like fully spun up and it updates the pull request description with a link to that preview environment. And for us, it actually links to, I think about like six or seven different uh, map instances that we create as like seed maps on each um, pull request preview. And they have like different setups. Some have like maps spanning the whole world. Some are like more localized. Some have like lots of uh, polygons for testing like rendering performance. And it encodes like a little, an auto generated token for each, that's unique to each preview environment that when you click on that link, it'll log you in directly instead of you having to to log in with like our sample credentials each time. And so that just saves um, even more time as someone that's um, reviewing or trying out this functionality. That's another thing I did want to talk about was the value of setting up an, an environment with data, right? With test data. Because if I'm a QA developer or uh, just I'm I'm wanting to review a, a, a coworker's code as a developer myself, getting the data environment set up right can take time and I have to understand what the feature needs. Oh, like this adds new tables. Well, they got to be populated with something. How, what do I have to do to make that happen? You know, so be able to populate test data. I'd love to hear more about that and, and how that works and just what kind of problems you're solving with that. Like you mentioned this idea of setting up maps that cover all these different scenarios. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. So how it works is driven just by a normal like Phoenix um, seeds.exs file. And so in there, I think we're creating something like 30 like normal users and like the seven maps we're talking about. So, I mean, having all those users useful for testing if you want to test with like multiple different accounts and some that are like admins versus normal users. So you said the Phoenix Seeds thing. So I'm remembering like how it's generated. So it's just it's just this, this EXS file that's it's executed straight in, right? You see you have a running Phoenix server and then and then it just executes. Normally, it's just a bunch of repo inserts. How does this work with releases? Do you trigger that through like a, like you compile your your Phoenix app, 
Do you have like a, a release function that that executes that EXS that seeds file or like how how does that part work? And it also sounds like the these all of these scenarios are populated for all of your preview environments, right? So the links inside of your GitHub pull request description there to to the, the these these hype these tokens are they're just they're just pointing to those specific maps that have already been seeded. They're not they're not seeded like dynamically as you click the link, for example. Yeah, that's that's all correct. Was there a question there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, how how does it work with releases then? Oh, yeah, oh, with releases. Sorry, yeah, um, we are using releases, and we do have like a like a seeder class that runs the seeds file. Hold on. Do you do you want to correct yourself here? A seeder class? What is this? I don't know what a class oh, like, is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seeder modules. <laughs> Some seeder code, really. Yeah, I mean that. Sometimes that's a little. It's a little annoying having to create that yourself. But I mean, it's not that bad. It's just one a one time thing, more or less, where you're just creating this seeder module that runs the seeds file. Yeah, I, I've I've coded that like four or five times now. Yeah, I <laughs> I understand how annoying it can be. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, well, going back up to higher higher level stuff. This sounds like a very like frictionless way to get all of these test scenarios up and running in a, in an environment that is accessible to a variety of teammates, you know, non-developers, which seems to be the, you know, the, 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 a good target for this, but it's also incredibly helpful for other developers, you know, on, on the, you know, on the, on the team. I'm, I'm curious. So I know that it was kind of started before you got there, but were there, was there any resistance to getting review environments up? Like, was there concerns about cost or complexities or anything like that? I'm, I'm curious what the downsides of this would be, if any. I don't think there was very much resistance. I think the the cost of like having these up is is totally worth it for the improved feedback and like the quicker iteration. I mean, feedback cycles are I think one of the the main things that you want to be reducing as a development process in general. I mean, from anything anything from like when you're making change changes locally, be able to see that as close to immediately as possible through like hot reloading or live reloading different sorts of scenarios. And then this is just like kind of an extension of that where now instead of getting feedback um, from yourself of the code, you're getting feedback from other people um, that are trying out the the running code. I mean, always the the counterpart to any sort of infrastructure type work, at least for my experience, like with startups is uh, trading that off versus actually developing product. Uh, so that's always like a constant um, balance that you have to have to sort of find. But I think investing in uh, development uh, tooling or experience is something that is um, very, very important, and it just it does reap benefits. But you definitely don't want to go into like a rabbit hole and spend like weeks on this. So, so we've hi- we've hired an engineer here, but it turns out you're a DevOpsing, you know, uh, <laughs> DevOps person. Yeah, <laughs> cool. You mentioned uh, render a lot here, so, so I understand that render has this feature set of preview environments and review environments or whatever the case was there. Are there other platforms that can handle this too? Like how how platform agnostic is, is some of this? And is this something that I can take advantage of? Like how, how do I get in on this game? The concept itself is obviously not specific to, to render. It's like a general sort of concept and idea and just the implementation would be different. I know that other environments do have this. You mentioned Heroku earlier, and I believe you can do this with um, fly.io. So I would definitely encourage you, anyone, to take advantage of this sort of setup because I think it's just very much uh, worth it. 
So one of the things you mentioned that you're doing with this, the render one, which uh, is this preview environments that it allows you to also set up the database, right? As a, so I get setting up two machines, like the one that's running the app and the one that's running the database. And what I like about that is just, you know, you can have these PRs that create tables and maybe modify existing tables. And then you like realize, it gives you that ability to realize, oh, like you're, but doing this ta- this database modification, you dropped all the, this like important field on our users. Right? You know, you can see that, right? But what I love is just that you are isolating that environment. Like even as a developer, if I want to run, check out this branch and run it locally, like what does that do to my machine? What state is it left in afterward? Oh, you didn't do a down migration very cleanly. Uh, so how do I clean this up? You know, it's like, I like the idea of being able to have the database be part of that too. I think that's a a key benefit that I don't know that we'd catch immediately when we think about this idea. Yeah, having that database there with like the a separate environment for for the data and everything, I think is very, very key. And you can just test out whatever scenarios you want. I mean, one extension of this, maybe you could do even some create even more like test data in the database so you can see like how long like a migration would take in a production like environment. Yeah, so you, t- you talked about two two servers. So like you have the the backend, and then you have the database. Um, but it, actually, like the most recent change, even since I made that series of tweets when we launched, is we're moving to more of a monorepo um, setup um, at Felt, in addition to like the backend, which is handling all the like drawing and collaboration features. We have a data pipeline that's running basically a bunch of like Python and geospatial code to import data that is now launched as part of these preview environments as well. But that is not actually going through render at all. That's through AWS, a set of like AWS Lambdas. And so that's being kicked off by GitHub Actions on the pull request. So we're launching a specific instance of that data pipeline per preview environment. And then we're hooking that up to render. And so that's via a render API call that we call on the preview environment to update environment variable of our application to point to this uh, separate data pipeline. Oh, that's interesting. Just like you're you're using GitHub as this central point where you know you're talking, it's talking to render servers, it's talking to AWS, and kind of orchestrating. You know, GitHub Actions uh, can be quite versatile. <laughs> it's yes, yeah, definitely versatile. And I guess because of that, it's this. This is why it's pretty pretty compatible with a variety of platforms like Render, which is what you guys are using. But this is why it can work with Gigalixer, for example, or or fly or anywhere else, as long as they have a, you know, an API or utility that talks to the API stuff that, that, that can work. That's pretty cool. One of those features that you would want from your platform, which you highlight, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes, is the render documentation, which has automatic expiration. So you don't accidentally leave something out there for a year. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> then the charges really start adding up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we had like, 60 servers, you know, just like kind of hanging around forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you don't want to just enable this without looking into how they're expired and cleaned up. Yeah, that is an important uh, consideration. <laughs> yeah, Jason, you mentioned this idea of a, a change that you guys were doing was the mono repo, you know, bringing other projects that aren't even Elixir in some cases into the same GitHub repository. So they are versioned together. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing there and what benefits that's getting, giving you that you thought, yeah, this is what we need to do. The main benefit for that is that you can test changes um, to the pipeline that interact with changes to the app and you want to be able to deploy them um, together or at least at the very minimum test them together um, because these are separate systems. Um, they will be deployed separately, kind of similar to 
migrations in the database if you're using like zero downtime deploys. I think most commonly I've seen and experienced mono repos when you're talking about like front end, you might include the front end code, which is like a, a React or Vue.js or something else, right? It's some other front end because they're often so coupled with what's going on at the back end. You're wanting to deploy them at the same time or, or relatively you know, around the same time. So yeah, that, that's an interesting, you know, because you're mentioning some of these other things are Python. So yeah, that's really cool. All right, Jason. So help, help me out here. I'm, I'm having a little a little hard time putting all, all this together. So I get the concepts, right? I, I understand what you're doing. I, I've, I've seen that happen in a couple of different places, but I'm not sh- sure how I can do this. Like, is there is there a guide out there? Are there any docs out there? Or, or is this, is this you know, bubble gum and tape that I have to, I have to figure out on my own? Is there, is there somewhere I can go to help, you know, uh, my team or some other team, like, help adopt this pretty cool process that you guys have done? Like, is, is there something on render docs or maybe eventually Fly.io docs? Where, where can I go to get, get help on this? You would start with the documentation on, on render, um, in this case, if you're using render to deploy. Uh, there's two parts to that. The first part is just generally having a render.yaml, which is describing your infrastructure, um, how many or what instances you have, some environment variables. And from there, then you just enable the, like, there's a preview environment flag of some sort. There's a separate docs on, on render for that. I think there's some similar docs for, for fly.io that we could add to the, probably gonna be in the show notes. Yeah. And I was, when I saw your tweets about this, about doing these PR reviews, I was like, I went and, I started asking around and fly. It's like, oh, is this something we can do? How, how do you do that? Because I, I didn't know, right? I haven't been on a team where I was need, looking to do this. And then like, oh yeah, check this out. And so it was new to me, but like, there's a fly, so I'll have a link to this in the show notes. There's a repo set up. It's a fly PR review apps, how to do that on fly, which t- goes through, it's documented nicely in the in the readme of here are the environment variables and the in- inputs and you know your your. GitHub action config and how to do the cleanup for the environments afterward and setting up the Postgres cluster for getting that database cluster too. So I do think this is a concept that can be applied to many different environments where we are. The one bit that I haven't seen yet anywhere, and maybe you can you know, write a blog post or share with people is like that little bit with the, the JavaScript of like updating the GitHub environment to say, hey, put these tokens in so I can immediately launch it. Link me to wherever it was deployed. Things like that, I think, would be really helpful for people. And when I say people, I, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm envisioning like a blog post with like a little sample application that would kind of hook all these things um, together. Because overall, it's not like really too much code or setup. So I think it would be something that someone could easily play with if somebody set up the initial basic infrastructure. Uh, so that's a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm seeing two keys to this. Is first, first key is you got you got to have your infrastructure as code in some way. And in your case, you're describing the the render YAML stuff, but that could be Terraform for somebody else. It could be, you know, whatever. Okay, so that's the first key. The second key is you got to have a a little bit of glue code between GitHub and your infrastructure <laughs> platform. Uh, and this is the part that, yeah, Mark was just talking about that would edit maybe the Git, or, or maybe it's the GitHub action. I don't know. What, what Some of those things. Maybe that's the third key. Maybe there's three keys here. Need the GitHub action too. <laughs> <laughs> so those three things. Okay. All right. Now I think I got it. Okay. So Jason, you better write that that blog post like now. Otherwise you're going to be nerd sniped <laughs> and somebody else is going to, somebody else is going to get this up, you know? Yeah. I think I'll, maybe I'll try to write it. 
uh, to be released before the this podcast is released. <laughs> if it's ready, we will put it in the show notes. So check there. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us because I don't know if you mentioned this, but you're, you said you're in Honolulu, Hawaii. So you got up very early to talk with us, which we appreciate. We appreciate all the stuff that you're doing and that, you know, you mentioned that you're a moderator in Elixir Forum, like, oh, just ho-hum, I'm a moderator. But like, that's, that's the job of helping to keep the environments that we, that we spend our time in as professionals, keep them civil, keep them clean and appreciate that too. Uh, because I love our Elixir community and I love how positive it can be and how uh, beneficial that is for everyone. And I love that we make an effort and you're, you're part of that effort of keeping it that way. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, and also thanks for having me on the show. It's been great. Before we let you go, where can people follow you online or learn more about this? Yeah, you can follow me online. I think my Twitter is the best place at Boston Valter. And before I go, I should also mention that we are um, hiring at Felt. So if you're interested, you should definitely check out our um, careers page at felt.com. Awesome. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.